Okay, hello everyone and welcome to The Poplar Tapes. Uh, This is a podcast about the intersections between philosophy and politics where we try and examine some of the discourses that are going on in the public sphere today and maybe unpack them a little bit and trace some longer kinds of continuities than uh, the rapid fire news cycle that we are all tied up in. Uh, my name is Keegan Irish, and uh, I am, let's see, who am I? I'm a recent graduate from a, a master's in philosophy program, so that's a new uh, development. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and I'm here with uh, my friends, uh, my good uh, good friends, Alex Edwards and Alex Bose. So maybe you guys can say hello and let everyone know who you are. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, my name is Alex Bose, and uh, I I'm a uh, I'm doing an MA in Translation Studies at Concordia University. And uh, yeah, uh, would you, uh, Alex? Yeah. Well, this is Alex Edwards. Um, I'm uh, in the middle of doing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Ottawa. Uh, I focus mainly on like ancient Greek philosophy, but um, I'm branching a lot uh, branching out a lot these days um yeah there's i guess that's the the basic thing awesome and (laughs) so uh the three of us have been friends for a long time we all originally met out in halifax Mm. when we were doing uh liberal arts degrees and uh we've been kind of talking around issues of contemporary politics Mm. and uh, his, history and philosophy and religion for a long time, and with this podcast, yeah. we're almost to, a decade. Oh yeah, almost a decade. <laughs> Damn. So uh, <laughs> just gets yeah, with this engaged. podcast, we're trying to move some of those uh, some of those conversations. Mm. You know, uh, move them online, make them a bit more uh, publicize them, if, if you will. Publicize them in a way. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. Uh, right. Make sure to, uh, if uh, you like what we're talking about today, make sure to follow us on uh, Twitter. And let's dive into our conversation about false dichotomies in political discourse. Okay. All right, we're on air. How's it going, gentlemen? Nice to see you. That's going Good. very well. How about yourself? Good. Nice to hear your voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, likewise. likewise. Yeah. Good. Good. So um, today in this episode, I wanted to talk about what I'm calling uh, false dichotomies in our contemporary political discourse. We sort of touched on this momentarily, I believe, in our first episode, but I think it really deserves um, it deserves an episode of its uh, of its own. So what I wanted to do is give three kind of concrete examples of what I mean by these false dichotomies, and then to suggest that in order to make progress uh, in the way that uh, I would say that (laughs) vast majority of people on earth desire, specifically with regard to climate policy and the current climate crisis, uh, which is extremely dire, which uh, we'll get into in a moment, um, but also just more generally in terms of you know local, regional politics uh, and, and and national politics, um, 
and really that the way to make progress is to recognize these false dichotomies for what they are and uh, then find a way to overcome them. And I think really only in that way can we make the, make the progress that we want to make. So uh, let me stop uh, being so abstract and concretize this a little bit. Uh, so my first example, if you like, Exhibit A, is the 2016 election in the United States between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Like these were the these were the alternatives that uh, American citizens were <laughs> given uh, in 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 2016, and you know this was the quote unquote choice that we were that we were supposed to make. And the first question I want to float is just to what extent is Hillary Clinton really a, a genuine alternative uh, to to Donald Trump? Firstly, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that this decision <laughs> was basically shoved down our throats by the by the DNC, the Democrat Democratic National Committee, and of course the GOP, uh, the the Republican Party. And I would suggest that the DNC actually deserves most of the blame here. Uh, firstly, because of the so-called Pied Piper strategy, which in brief, <laughs> uh, this was revealed on a, in a WikiLeaks document, was um, that this was a, the explicit strategy of the DNC was to elevate uh, so-called Pied Piper candidates, who, there were three of them, who they assumed uh, <laughs> that were basically so horrible that they would make Hillary Clinton look good in comparison to these candidates. Um, the assumption there being, which they actually stated, uh, was that they understood that Hillary Clinton was an extremely problematic candidate, to put it lightly. Um, therefore, they needed to elevate the most horrible uh, candidates in the Republican field in order to make her look good. And I think those three candidates were uh, Donald Trump, <laughs> Ted Cruz, and uh, <laughs> Ben Carson, the uh, <laughs> the neuros yes, uh. <laughs> the neurosurgeon who who seems to be you know high as high high on his own supply, just about every day. And also uh, <laughs> yeah. the 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 now the housing minister or whatever you guys call him. Yes, down my there, God, who oh. uh, confused uh, R E O right real estate owned with Oreo. <laughs> <laughs> In a recent gaffe, so. <laughs> so, um, so first of all, this was an explicit strategy of the DNC, uh, was to elevate the bi-piper candidates, including Trump, and, um, uh, you know, this is what, part, part of what generated the whole circus that was the 2016 election, where, you know, Donald Trump gets, what, what was it, an hour, two hours of, uh, of uh, well, it was like M MSNBC covered his empty podium uh, while Bernie Sanders uh, was giving a speech <laughs> yeah. and so forth, right? Uh, I think Trump got a billion or two billion dollars of free airtime, uh, etc. So, um, so first of all, we can we can we can blame the DNC pretty squarely squarely for that. Obviously, they were wrong. Obviously, uh, Donald Trump was not, a, uh, or rather, Hillary Clinton was not able to beat Donald Trump. But that was their assumption. 
Uh, and the second reason is also that uh, they rigged the primary, the DNC rigged the primaries against Bernie Sanders. Uh, we know that now from WikiLeaks documents, but, you know, you don't even have to be, uh, it's just not even conjecture or speculation at this point. You don't have to have some kind of esoteric knowledge of leaked WikiLeaks documents to understand this because they were literally brought to court over it. Um, and... Rather than deny the allegations, uh, as you might expect, because the legal basis for the allegations is that in their charter, in the DNC charter, uh, it stipulates that they have to remain, the DNC has to remain impartial with respect to the nominee, um, right? Like, they don't get to choose who the nominee will be. You let the <laughs> democratic process, you know, result in 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 the, in the choice of 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 the nominee, but in, I mean we we now know that the that HRC the Hillary uh, Rodham Clinton campaign was in control of the DNC from from the outset, um, and without going into the details there again they were brought to court over this and rather than deny the allegations they admitted the allegations uh so to speak but they argued uh that they're not legally obligated that the dnc is not legally obligated to abide by the charter why uh because they're a private corporation <laughs> which is the rub so uh yeah, so for, I mean, for those two reasons, I think it's more helpful on some level to blame the the DNC for this than the GOP. You know, the Republicans are going to be Republicans. Um, of course, Trump basically took over the party, uh, but you know, I mean, they at least you know they say that they're for horrible policies, and then they actually kind of like enact those horrible policies. Um, so. There's not much inquiry you have to do. There's there's not much excavation you have to do in terms of what they say and what they do. The DNC, on the other hand, claims to be for uh, you know pro worker uh, to be claims to be fighting against the climate crisis, uh, claims to be for universal health care and so forth. But they don't actually support the policies like you know, <laughs> Medicare for all, that would actually lead to those outcomes. So there's a kind of hypocrisy problem. They're right. not practicing and what they it preach. Seems like, yeah. It seems like what you are pointing to there is that what leads to something like a false dichotomy between uh, Hillary and the Trump, which is an explicit strategy on the part of the architects of American government, mm -hmm. right? Um mm -hmm. What leads to something like that is the separation between the explicit public-facing mm. ideology that the party puts forward um, and the technocratic policymaking in which uh, that is done largely behind closed doors and that people have very little access to either in terms of knowing how it operates or uh, in terms of... Um, democratic involvement in in the making of policy and this is yeah. something that uh, we talked about previously just the way in which that leads to like an increasing sense of alienation from the mechanisms of control that 
could build society for the average person or the average citizen. Yeah, it's like an anti anti democratic structure. Yeah, it is. And uh, and just like something to keep in mind on, uh, it's like uh, that that distinction that was being made um, uh, between like the te- technocratic policy making and like the image making and like the public relations uh, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, both of you are talking mm-hmm. about uh, is um, that like public relations is actually just like a, a term that was invented to replace the notion of propaganda that like Edward Bernays came up with in like the early 20th century. So I just thought that's Mm -hmm. a funny thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about like uh, mass manipulation and like media manipulation and right. Cause we get this, uh, we, when we hear the word propaganda, we think, Oh, that's false Mm, information that we're being given. (laughs) Right. But, oh, it's the public relations by the Democratic Party. It doesn't have the same implication that it is false. But when you start to look at the separation between the way that they construct policy and the way that they uh, market themselves to the broader public, That's right. you know, a lot more of these discrepancies are beginning. Yeah, yeah it's actually the word propaganda is cognate with, uh, with uh, propagation. And so mm-hmm. technically, yes, it's just a kind of a means of propagation, you know, uh, <laughs> although these days uh, it has a, has a purely pejorative or negative sense. But, um, yeah, and, you know, I mean, this point was kind of summarized nicely, actually, in Hillary Clinton's famous uh, statement that she had a private position and a public position. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. exactly. And I was trying to, fi- I was yeah. looking, Googling just now, trying to figure out what that statement <laughs> Indeed, was. Yeah, very, yeah, very, exactly very famously. It. And it's that kind of two-facedness, right? That kind of duplicity, mm-hmm. um, which is arguably more pernicious than just the uh, openly horrible policies of the GOP. And like, at least they tell you, uh, you know, what they stand for and, you know, and then they enact it. But, but. Right. In a way, in a way, I think that there's more in common there where they uh, like to make big splashes with, these kind of public-facing shows of cruelty, mm. these huge, large demonstrations right. of brutality towards no, immigrants and poor point. folks yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. But um, nonetheless, they toe the line when it comes to the kind of neoliberal economic best practices. Indeed. Everybody's saying what they what's convenient in order to get elected. That's... Yeah. yeah there's no doubt. Um for these two reasons, I mean, I I spend a lot mo- more of my time criticizing the DNC than I do the GOP or the Democrats than I do the Republicans, just because the Democrats are nominally supposed to be <laughs> for policies like universal health care, um, you know, ex- affordable uh, uh, public education. Um, they're supposed to be anti-war or, you know, again, nominally, although uh, the last time that the Democratic Party in general was was an anti-war party is, you know, beyond my memory. Um, so we have this choice, uh, this dichotomy between between Clinton and Trump. And my question is, you know, <laughs> is this a false dichotomy? And generally speaking, I would say yes. Although there are uh, 
we can get into the weeds, right? So I would say if you look at their policies rather than at their images, and I think image is important, but not as important as as policy. So if you look, if you just concentrate on uh, Clinton and Trump's policies, it becomes very ambiguous, like who is to the left of whom, who is to the right of whom. So, I mean, you know, if you look at Hillary, uh, in term, you know, pro Wall Street, pro military industrial complex, pro big pharma, pro fracking. She voted for the Iraq War. She did Libya. She wanted a more muscular response in Syria. Uh, she's anti living wage. You know, anti <laughs> anti free college, anti Medicare for all. And, uh, you know, one of the architects of mass incarceration in, in, in the United States, yes. what, what Eddie Conway calls targeted incarceration, uh, because it, you know, disproportionately uh, affects uh, people of color, but also it was just straight up targeted against, you know, members of the Black Panthers, etc. So, uh, yeah, including him. Um, so... Um, you know, when you look at their, you know, as opposed to someone like Trump, who, for instance, he he ran, I mean, during the campaign, he uh, said he wanted to get out of, get the hell out of the Middle East kind of thing, you know. Now, of course, he was lying, or at least just saying whatever, you know, he needed to say in order to generate support to get elected, because, you know, I mean, the the story of his first year in office is basically the story of the neocons securing their control over his administration now to the point that he's national security advisors john effing bolton um and you know i mean so whatever to, you know whatever uh, instinct he may have had however correct his kind of you know he want he said he wanted to cooperate with russia and so forth which you know from a détente perspective is extremely crucial you know we have this massive uh, anti-russian xenophobia you know under the cover of uh, <laughs> russia gate in the us right now and of course that's being promulgated by the Democrats rather than the Republic. I mean, that's the difference between the, the new Red Scare and the old Red Scare is that it's the Democrats who are pushing it this time. <laughs> but uh, all these things have, you know, made it impossible for Trump to act on whatever kind of uh, anti-conflict, uh, anti-war sort of instinct he may have had. Um, you know, and, and again, I, you know... <laughs> Arguably, he just doesn't even really care. I mean, this is on the assumption that he's he was being sincere about it, and maybe he just you know, you know just doesn't really care, and he right. was saying what he needed to say in order to get elected. But um, you know, in that respect, insofar as he actually paid lip service to uh, let's say the anti-war sentiment, the genuine anti-war sentiment of American citizens. Um, you know, he was running to the left in that respect of Hillary Clinton, who wouldn't even pay lip service. To. I mean, she said she she wanted a no-fly zone in Syria, which translated uh, geopolitically means that she wanted a direct confrontation with Russia. Uh, you know, another nuclear power, <laughs> right? So, um, whereas Trump said he wanted to cooperate with Russia, you know. So, in that respect, she was running as more of a war hawk than he was even though, you know, he was lying or he, you know, didn't care. Right. But, yeah. and she, I mean, she was trying to present herself as the realist. And I think this Indeed. is the thing with 
the kind of the neoliberal um, policymaker is that they are supposed to represent like the scientific um, determination of the best practices when it comes to economics, foreign policy, etc. And part of the appeal of the Trump campaign was that it explicitly rejected those best practices, at least in terms of rhetoric. When it comes to actual policy making, it's been pretty obvious that there's a huge degree of continuity with the actual practices. But um, in terms of rhetoric, he was able to tap into that discontent that people felt with those best practices. But I think when you look at the neoliberal era as a whole and try and make sense of the election of conservatives within it, um, one of the things that it's important to kind of keep in mind is that they basically function as a kind of uh, punishment for voters who fail to support the best practices, the party that represents the best practices, the, the, the Liberal Party or the Democratic Party in uh, the United States and the Liberal Party in Canada. Because there's this kind of analogy to the false dichotomy between Trump and Hillary in the uh, – recent Ontario election, semi-recent, it's been a few years now, um, of uh, of Doug Ford, as opposed to uh, Kathleen Wynne, who was our previous uh, liberal premier, where some of the rage that people expressed uh, against Kathleen Wynne um, was especially around like her sale of Hydro One, which was a public uh, utility, and it sold off to a private company. And this raised the price for the consumers at point of purchase where they uh, are getting their power and so on. And so they're all, you know, in vengeance against her actions here. You know, they elect the conservative who ran on basically no platform at all, right? Like during the campaign itself, it was very difficult to determine what kinds of policies Doug Ford supported. Mm. And now that he's in office, he's just enacted these incredibly vengeful, brutal, punitive yeah. policies that, you know, even in the uh, Toronto Star, which is kind of a traditionally liberal newspaper, there was an op-ed published um, where Friedrich Engels' uh, paper was cited on uh, housing, where he describes uh, these kind of policies where um, the basic necessities of life are stripped away as social murder. Mm. So... The false dichotomy that's set up is between neoliberal best practices and extremely punitive government that nonetheless enacts those practices <laughs> as determined by mm. uh, the kind of uh, policymakers who endure from one government to the next right. or who move between them, who uh, move into the private sector temporarily and so on. Right. right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think what that points to is that <laughs> the issue here is that it's a false dichotomy because on some level, it's sort of two different faces of the same system, right? Exactly. And, uh, the, you know, in front of the cameras, they put on the full pomp, pomp and circumstance of opposing one another and, you know, like, look how horrible this other person is. But behind the scenes, you know, uh, they have the same donors, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. Uh, so, they have the same um, organs. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Trump was used as a kind of a big bad wolf to say, you know, it's like, well, you don't want something as horrible as that. So therefore, you have to vote for the lesser of two evils. The problem with voting for the lesser of two evils, it's each election cycle. 
is that, I mean, every time we do this, the so-called Overton window or the window of acceptable discourse moves gradually, slowly but surely to the right until you end up with a situation like the 2016 election where, you know, Bernie Sanders, who is a a kind of regular moderate so-called democratic socialist, is seen as some kind of radical left-wing commie, uh, you know, that wants to that wants to bring whatever socialism, communism, which people don't bother to distinguish, uh, you know, to America and so forth. Uh, and then you have Clinton, a literal neoconservative warmonger. I mean, I just <laughs> I just listed the the grievances earlier who is now just a classic right winger, who is now the head of the Democratic uh, Party. And the Republican Party has, you know, moved so far off the cliff that it's not, I mean, it's just the party of Trump now, essentially. A a bunch of sycophants around Trump. And so, Um, if I could just jump in quick. And so the Overton window has been pushed so far to the right in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say that... uh, Hannah Arendt, right, who lived through the mm. whole Nazi rise to power in Germany, um, targets specifically this phenomenon with, uh, or sort of credits this phenomenon specifically with with the Nazis' rise, right? It's voting for the lesser of two evils that brought in the Nazis. Mm. They appeared as though mm. they were the lesser of, uh, of the two evils. That's right. <clears throat> so this cycle kind yes. of leads you there. As a kind of quote-unquote compromise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, as if it were a, as if it were a compromise, as if it were a meaningful mm-hmm. alternative. I would just say that, you know, we've reached a point in, in human history in 2019 where we, I think we need to recognize this voting for the lesser of two evils as a failed strategy. You know, if you recognize the direness or the urgency of the recent IPCC report, the International Panel on Climate Change, you know, which says that, you know, give or take, we've got about 10 years to figure out how to transition away from fossil fuel based economy to a renew you know to a renewable energy based economy if you actually recognize the urgency of the of the moment you know in history in which we live then it follows from that that we don't have enough we don't have we no longer have time for "Quote unquote incrementalism, right? There needs to be radical movement. There needs to be, you know, we need to really break away from the system that we're currently operating in, and yeah. that cannot be done in time mm-hmm. through so-called, you know, incremental changes. I mean, I, I heard the the joke uh, that it's a little bit like asking <laughs> Rosa Parks." To you know, move move to the front of the bus, but do do it incrementally. You know, don't do it all at once. Uh, <laughs> like you know, th- there are points oh where you God. need to make moves, and you know, it follows that we we just no longer have time for incrementalism. And if you still insist that we do, that we still have to make you know, that we still have to support uh, politicians who advocate these kind of quote unquote incremental policies. I don't see much space between you uh, and and a climate denier. I mean, I don't really see how much how much better incrementalism is than just full on climate denialism. 
Yeah, and I mean, it is a form of denialism. It's just a more subtle. Form it's more of subtle, and for right? that reason, it's arguably well, even it's, worse. I mean, yeah, it's a the denialism of the urgency, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's just not recognizing the urgency. Of That's the right, situation. and in that sense, it's, it's arguably like, even yeah. worse, or it's more pernicious. Insofar as you know, you're actually leading people to believe that you know the incremental thing would work. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, you know, then you have to spend a, a lot of extra time uh, dismantling that argument. But um, so, again, you know, voting for the lesser of two evils, which is a strategy that just inevitably leads to a situation like the 2016 election, which is itself a massive false dichotomy. Um, again, as if Clinton represented a genuine alternative to Donald Trump. Once again, I think image is important. I mean, you know, presumably Clinton wouldn't be like openly calling for right wing violence against like Ilhan Omar. You know, image is important. You know, it creates a, a, a certain atmosphere. But I, I think you also have to move past the image and look at the policies. And again, if you, if you recognize the urgency of the IPCC report, it just follows that we no longer have time uh, for incremental moves right. and we need radical change. And so it's a false dichotomy. Yeah, and it doesn't seem unreasonable to say something like, yeah, the cultural climate under a Hillary Clinton presidency wouldn't have been quite as mm. strongly conducive towards some of the right-wing terror that we've seen justified mm. in the past few mm. years, you know, with these kind of explicit massacres where... Both sides, people, uh, um, the Nazis and yeah. the anti-Nazis, <laughs> basically the same thing. <laughs> Great people you know, on the Nazi side. There, yeah, you know. so like, yeah. there's sort of been... He's managed to create a climate where brutal interpersonal violence uh, is festered. And we can acknowledge that, Mm. but that isn't to say that somehow that presidency would have been like a meaningful step towards the kinds of changes that need to take place in our social order if we want to continue existing as a species on the earth, right? Um, And I think this is one of the big issues. Mm. It's like voting uh, or maybe one of the insights that you're pointing to here. Uh, with this kind of argument about false dichotomies, right? Like, yeah, voting for the lesser of two evils as a damage control strategy can only ever be that. It can only ever do damage control. It can't do the meaningful work in society exactly. that needs to take place, you know? And as it, the Americans run up against the 2020 election, and here in Canada we have an election yeah. this year, um, we're facing these exact same problems over again, where we're getting these false dichotomies set up between somebody who is, um, you know, it's not as though they are proposing any seriously radical policies. Mostly their policy is, listen, I am not mm. some kind of heinously violent racist, yeah. even though I continue to fully stand yeah. behind policies that you know, in gender racial violence. Yeah. Nonetheless, I'm not going to ex- say it out loud, yes. right? Yeah. And there's that person or there's just the out and out uh, fascist who's increasingly difficult to kind of distinguish mm. from the traditional mm. conservative, mm-hmm. you know, as those mm-hmm. movements become closer and closer Indeed. together. You know, it's it's hard to, to say like, oh, um, 
the Andrew Shears of the world are um, are just constitutional conservatives or something mm-hmm. like this when their whole campaign is being run by rebel media and these kind of like farthest right elements of Canadian society. Right. So, and I mean, obviously that it's there's an analogous phenomenon in the United no, States yeah. as well, where they're, you know, they're attempting to run whatever the Biden, the Biden or uh, Kamala Harris <laughs> or, or something another like old white yeah. racist <laughs> yeah, <laughs> against you know. another old white racist. Wonderful. As Let's though, as though that's some kind of like better alternative <laughs> when you know the kind of policies yeah. they will enact. And so you may want to vote for that person as like a form of damage control, but it's pretty obvious that that's not political action yes, and that that is not going to have a meaningful impact yeah. on the kinds of issues that they might even give lift service to mm. like climate change, right? Which obviously the Democrats and the liberals in Canada have to talk about climate change. Mm. But how meaningfully are they going to take action? Not at all. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no meaningful social transformation or societal transformation. Indeed. Either. And uh, yeah. if we recognize the urgency of the IPCC report, which, you know, incidentally is, some have said, already overly optimistic. But once we recognize the urgency of the crisis, uh, it just follows that we no longer have time for these Band-Aids, these Band-Aid solutions. You know, and if you're pushing these Band-Aid solutions, then you're part of the problem. Yeah. Um, and so with that in mind, let's, let's segue to uh, Exhibit B, if you like, or <laughs> my second example of, uh, of false dichotomies in, in contemporary political discourse. That would be, on the one hand, a reasonable climate policy, and on the other hand, workers' rights uh, or you know, jobs. Um, as if the transition to a renewable energy-based economy somehow excludes or uh, is antagonistic to workers' rights and uh, them maintaining jobs, benefits, etc. This, I think, is a really important false dichotomy because it's constantly brought up by, I'll just use the term conservatives, uh, as, a, as an objection to uh, what in the United States is being called the Green New Deal, right? Um, this uh, phrase is being used by people outside the United States now, too, although this is kind of funny because, of course, the Green New Deal in the U.S. context, refers to a recuperation, if you like, of the of FDR, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, New Deal. Uh, and so the Green New Deal is a, a recuperation of that in the 21st century. Obviously, uh, other countries <laughs> never had their New Deal, uh, so uh, at least in name, so it's a little funny. So one of the normal objections to the program of the Green New Deal uh, which is being advocated by people like AOC and you know the rest of the very small progressive wing in the Democratic Party. Um, an objection that you'll always hear brought up is, well, what about jobs, right? What about, and in, in that regard, what about workers' rights? So we have, you know, thousands of people working in. Uh, if not more, working in the fossil fuel industry, for in- instance, and does transitioning uh, off of fossil fuels uh, entail that those people lose their jobs, their benefits, we leave them out to dry, etc. This idea of opposing the Green New Deal to jobs is 
you know, my second example of a false dichotomy. And the simple answer here lies in the idea of a just transition. Simply put, this just means transitioning from jobs in the fossil fuel industry to jobs in the renewable energy sector. And, you know, the notion of a just transition entails that we do not leave (laughs) workers behind while undertaking this crucial transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy, right? So that's the simple solution to this dichotomy. I think from the outset, we need to be emphasizing this idea of the just transition because otherwise the discourse or the debate just sort of devolves into these false dichotomies as if there were some kind of contradiction between the Green New Deal and preserving workers' rights. Yeah, could, um, could I add something to that? Go too? for it. Um, yeah, I mean, if you even look at the Green New Deal policy proposal, uh, which uh, you can find on the internet if you're looking up uh, recognizing the duty of the federal government to create an, to create a Green New Deal, um, one of one of their aims, like in the list of their aims and objectives, they do actually they don't mention in what specifically they'll they'll be doing, but part of their aims are to create millions of good high wage jobs and uh, ensure prosperity and economic security for all people of the United States. And part of the Green New Deal is also to invest in building sustainable infrastructure and industry in the U.S. And I mean, obviously, like, just even thinking about that, you would presume that, uh, you know, lots of lots of jobs would be created by uh, that uh, societal transformation, right? So hmm. anyway. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's, it's uh, supposed to be a holistic program. And hmm. as, you know, as we'll get into later, I mean, it has... Uh, certain problems. There have been several valid criticisms made of it, um, uh, you know, that we can we can get into uh, in, in a little bit of detail. But it is still an absolutely necessary step, even if it's insufficient, right? So I think we can call it the, a necessary step forward, although, um, you know, it's, op- it's, it's not a big enough step. A lot of improvement. Yes, yeah. it's necessary, mm-hmm. but insufficient. And, you know, in this regard, in, in terms of emphasizing the notion of a just transition from the outset in order to overcome this false dichotomy between the Green New Deal on the one hand and then, like, workers' rights, uh, jobs, benefits on the other, um, and how important it is, again, to emphasize this notion of the just transition from the outset, I'm just going to quote a brief clip here from a speech that Jeremy Corbyn recently gave in the UK Parliament uh, on... On climate emergency. Right? Yes, it's uh, this, uh, his so-called climate emergency declaration, which is you know, in, quite in line with the Green New Deal program that uh, AOC has been proposing in the United States. And um, there's a moment uh, relatively early in his speech uh, that he allows uh, a question. He actually allowed a lot of questions during this during his speech. But uh, there is a representative who uh, from the from the opposition who raises precisely this objection about uh, jobs as if as if uh, this were a genuine objection 
to the climate emergency declaration that uh, Corbyn is uh, proposing here. So I'm just going to run this clip uh, very briefly because I think it brings out the dichotomy and it also brings out the importance of really just going uh, and responding to an objection like this, of just going for the jugular and emphasizing the just, the just transition in order to overcome this dichotomy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run this clip. I just want to speak for giving way, but just on that point of fossil fuels, does he recognise that natural gas has done more to decarbonise this country, reducing our levels to hasn't been seen since 1888? And does he also recognise 280,000 jobs are supported by the oil and gas industry? Is he concerned about those 280,000 jobs? We want a sustainable energy policy in this country, and I didn't hear all of the members' intervention because others were talking, but... If he's talking about issues of fracking, he knows perfectly well that this party is opposed to it because we want to see a more sustainable world and a sustainable environment. I give way to... Yeah. So, so in this clip, Jeremy Corbyn allows a, a question from a member of the opposition. And uh, so this member of the opposition... Uh, uh, raises the objection, uh, does, does Corbyn understand that 280,000 jobs are supported, by, are supported by the oil and gas industry? Uh, and does, uh, you know, he, he asks, does, Jer- does Jeremy Corbyn recognize this? <laughs> and I, I love Jeremy Corbyn in general, but this is a, a slight, uh, if you like, rhetorical recommendation I would make to him, is that when, when let's say a conservative brings up this this issue of jobs as if this is a genuine objection to the notion of a green new deal it's crucial to just emphasize the notion of a just transition for workers from the outset so that it becomes clear you know that there is no dichotomy between meaningful climate policy and legislation on the one hand, and then workers' rights uh, and jobs on the other. In fact, that's why the just transition is included as a central component of the Green New Deal, uh, so that we are precisely not leaving behind people who work in the fossil fuel energy sector. No, I I, I hear what you're saying. So... And it seems as well that whenever this kind of objection to uh, a transition to a kind of green economy, to use the, the term, is raised by conservatives, and they throw this word jobs in there, or they kind of feign concern for workers' rights, I think what you'd want to say um, <clears throat> from like a left perspective is that that's a, a real kind of code switch yeah. moment. Like they do not give yeah. a shit about workers' yeah, rights true. or about the fact that those people have jobs. They care about the fact that the ownership class has access to those resources to exploit and to continue yeah. to profit off of, right? Because there are good and bad ways to respond to that yeah. that objection. I think that it's offered in bad yeah. faith when the conservatives bring it up. Because you'll notice what else he says in that clip is he brings up that fracking has uh, done more to green the economy than anything right. else which is an absolutely absurd <laughs> claim. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, there 
it's it's true that fracking has become like more efficient where they don't drill like hundreds of holes now they drill one and mm. they cut across um, mm. horizontally through mm. the bedrock in order to access oil and right. pump it up that way so like yeah they've developed more efficient technologies but it's still unbelievably uh, mm. destructive mm. on the environment you know like you can't realistically argue that that practice can it's like the damage control that we you had been talking about earlier just mm. like yeah you know it's just like so they so they sneak the in these kind of absurd claims as well to defend the practices of these large uh, energy extraction mm. companies. And so I think that there's a real sleight mm. of hand that's no going on there. Um, <clears throat> and so there's good and bad ways to respond to it when you're confronted with that uh, challenge by a conservative and you're somebody on the left. And so I think the right way is precisely, yeah, to emphasize this question of workers' rights, to emphasize how um, jobs are going to be implemented in order to uh, maintain people at like a certain standard of living, so people don't suddenly fall into employment, uh, unemployment, and poverty. Like those are things that you want to really hammer on, and that um, the left needs to get better at talking about. Because even in the case of the AOC um, House of Representatives bill that we uh, were looking at. Um, the, there, it, there's not a lot of explicit provisions in there, and uh, the American Federation for Labor has actually criticized her on that point. So that those are things to kind of keep in mind. And there's a, a worse way. So in Canada right now, what the Green Party has done, I don't know if you guys have uh, seen this policy that Elizabeth May mm. has been proposing, that uh, we need to somehow end our dependence on um, foreign oil. And that, you know, as we transition away from an oil economy, the best way to do that is this kind of like protectionist economic thing where we depend uh, or we rely primarily on uh, Albertan oil um, to run the Canadian economy and so on. And like this is an absolutely pointless suggestion because the corporations who own the infrastructure in the tar sands, like those are huge multinational corporations. They have no interest in uh, Canada mm. in particular or mm. Canadian workers or anything yeah. like that. And there's absolutely no reason that we should be defending them in any meaningful sense or supporting construction of more uh, oil infrastructure in order to, um, you know, extract that kind of ex extremely filthy oil. So there's bad ways to respond mm -hmm. to it on the left. And I think that's what we've been seeing consistently where people are not taking this principled stand in favor mm -hmm. of labor. And I th that seems to me like what you're arguing for is that actually like if we were serious about workers' rights, then um, that would be a central plank of how you think about constructing exactly. a green economy rather than this kind of afterthought or this weakness, this opening through which conservatives can disingenuously slide their concerns for the ownership class. Yeah, and like, uh, I mean, it would be even better had like Jeremy Corbyn already addressed jobs uh, in order to just be proactive and avoid yeah. uh, or just kind of prevent that kind of objection from even being raised, right? Right. And th that's why, I yeah. mean, it, it, you know, we can't cede them that ground, essentially, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, because, <laughs> yeah, well, as, as you say, the notion that, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is against workers' rights and that guy from the opposition, like, really cares, you know, I mean, it's just sort of Per, you know, perverse, but uh, <laughs> but that's why rhetorically it's so crucial to just like as you as you said, hammer on this constantly because I think only only in that way are we going to be able to 
overcome this kind of false dichotomy and actually mm-hmm. make progress in that regard. Yeah. And, yeah. And you notice it's a very, very similar mm-hmm. phenomenon to what you're talking about with Trump pretending to have like a better foreign policy yeah. than Clinton. Right. Because when these kind of centrist liberal types um, outline their platform, it's easy for someone to swing left because everyone actually wants those leftist policies. You know, like people know that it's right not to wage these like fucking deranged wars. Like people know that it's right to care about the people Mm -hmm. in your society and uh, make sure that they don't fall into unemployment because you're trying to transition the um, construction of your infrastructure. You know, like people know that and they support those policies. So if the left isn't willing to occupy that space and to take up those causes, then it's easy for the right to disingenuously move Mm -hmm. in there to kind of take those Mm -hmm. talking points and then use them against the left in in debate or the kind of pseudo left in the case of a Clinton. But no, I think, Alex, you're right about just being proactive with this stuff. It's like, you know, there needs to be like a self-conscious kind of reflective moment where you genuinely take a principled stance uh, on these issues instead of waffling for the sake of whatever, like palatability Mm -hmm. or electability or whatever kind of... Yeah, but it it, it almost seems like... When when these kinds of uh, quote unquote more left or something, mm. uh, or just like maybe more center right or something, parties uh, are trying to draw voter base over, they do end up supporting the oil industry instead of trying to recontextualize uh, uh, jobs or address the issue of jobs uh, in a more sustainable frame, like framework mm. or uh, the framework yeah. of a sa- sustainable economies or green economies like mm. that isn't really discussed enough. I, I just, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of Rachel Notley, who was, you know, like the first NDP uh, government to be elected in Alberta, I think, in all of Canadian history, or uh, anyway, to break up like decades and decades of conservative rule there. Yeah, and like she she was like more critical of the oil industry at the beginning. And then, you know, near the end of her term, like she was far more pro pipeline, you know, and like, uh, you know, this is in order to appeal and to like appeal to voters, you know, and like try to get reelected. Mm. Right. And it's like, yeah. why, why is like the discourse around jobs still tied to mm. the oil industry somehow? Like there needs to be more recontextualization in political discourse, I think. Yeah. Why do they get mm. a pass, you know? And like, why do we think that depending on these industries or supporting their claims to ownership over resources are the way to secure like work mm. for people, yeah. mm-hmm. right? It's not as though when we talk about transitioning our economies, there isn't work Mm. to be done. Obviously Mm. there is, right? It's a lot of work to change the infrastructure in our society. And we can't trust these extraction companies to organize themselves in a way that they would try and get that work done in any meaningful sense. Yeah. It's like multi-scale work too. Like this is, this is, you know, know, institutional and like economic and, uh, yeah. Like infrastructure, it like requires like individual change. Mm -hmm. It required, like, it's just, it's on so many different levels. Well, and also, yeah, straight up. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the international, national, you know, regional, sectoral, local levels. uh, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. You know, one of the documents, uh, that is uh, supposed to outline some of the nuances and complexities here and to get into some of the details is uh, 
It's called Guidelines for a Just Transition Toward uh, Environmentally Sustainable Economies and Societies for All. This is a document of the International Labor Organization, uh, which is uh, part, part of the UN. So this is kind of the... Ah, manual, if you like, for the just transition. And I've I've read over it. I am not uh, an expert in this kind of thing uh, at all. So I have just, you know, sort of like some amateur comments to make about it. I mean, it is uh, quite, if you will, generalistic, but it arguably needs to be like this because this is supposed to be sort of internationally applicable and it has to allow for, uh, you know, tailoring to particular economies and that kind of thing. I mean, but one of the strongest statements uh, they make in regard to the inextricability of workers' rights and uh, sustainable development, as they call it, is in uh, Section 2... Uh, part 9, where I'll just quote it. Section 2, Part 9 says, Sustainable development is only possible with the active engagement of the world of work. Governments, employers, and workers are not passive bystanders, but rather agents of change who are able to develop new ways of working that safeguard the environment for present and future generations, eradicate poverty, and promote social justice by fostering sustainable enterprises and creating decent work for all. Now, already there, you can tell, I mean, it's highly general, right? Which, um, you know, like, what? well, what is decent work? But this is one of their general recommendations. And I think, you know, it's well put insofar as it points to this inextricability of workers' rights and 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 the transition to renewable energy. You know, that's all just to say that the dichotomy between the Green New Deal and all of its different versions around the world, um, and work, you know, on the one hand, and workers' rights on the other hand, is a false dichotomy as long as we understand, you know, this fundamental component of the program, which is the just transition. And I think what people on the left you know, need to do in every conversation about this is really just even brutally just keep insisting, you know, on this notion of a just transition because it does overcome, at least in theory, the dichotomy between transitioning to sustainable energy and preserving workers' rights and not peop- not leaving people out to dry. Um, right. Yeah, maybe I'll just... Um just to bring it up, mention some of the other yeah, critiques please. of yeah. the Green New Deal. Um, so, for example, in uh, The Independent, there was a piece written on the 4th of May this year by Assad Rahman called The Green New Deal Supported by Ocasio-Cortez and Corbyn is Just a New Form of Colonialism, uh, in which he argues that so long as capitalist extractive industries are the kind of motivating yeah. force uh, in the transition to a green economy, they will uh, simply exploit other kinds of resources resources that will be necessary to construct whatever solar energy systems and wind power that uh, will need mm-hmm. to be created. So uh, they'll need to mine vast quantities of cobalt, right. for example. 
Um, and so there has to be, I think, on the left, like a real sense of the internationalism of yeah. this problem, you know, where even in the kind of AOC model of the Green New Deal, there's still an American exceptionalism yeah. sort of built yeah. in, yeah. which does imply this colonial relationship to uh, the rest of the globe. And so that's something that we need to take more seriously and think about things like, uh, you know, cases have been made in, 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 in environmental circles for degrowth. So I don't think as long as we look at the transition away from fossil fuels as an economic opportunity for greater mm-hmm. growth, then we're doing a disservice to the realities of the material conditions of our planet, which require on the contrary, a degrowth of our absolutely massive, inflated, productive capacities, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's something to kind of keep in mind when this conversation comes up as well, because I think that in the Green New Deal and so on, they concede a lot to businesses. Yeah. And that if you're serious about environmental justice, those are moves you, you don't want to make. Those are concessions mm. you don't want to make. You want to be clear who your enemies are, who's yeah, responsible exactly. mm. for um, the reason that our planet is sick That's and right. dying. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And like, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there is, there is actually a discrepancy between like the Green New Deal and like uh, the International Labor Organization's uh, guidelines for a just transition to... Mm. Uh, towards sustainable economies yeah. like um, mm-hmm. uh, that particular like the the guidelines involved experts that were nominated by a variety of governments employers groups and workers groups mm-hmm. uh, around the world but you know it didn't include Canada and it didn't include in- right. England but it did yeah. include the United States mm-hmm. and it included Spain South Africa the Philippines Pakistan India Colombia mm-hmm. Turkey mm-hmm. Kenya Germany like uh, lots lots of different countries but Canada and England aren't a part of it, but it, it is almost its own separate thing. And I mean, if we're thinking about networks of colonial domination, uh, like Keegan was bringing up there uh, in regards to the critique of the Green New Deal, I mean, the Green New Deal is only focused on the United States there. So then when we're thinking about like decent work for all, well, that's not really mm-hmm. global mm-hmm. and that's not thinking about the multiple layers of transformation that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. But um, uh in the International Labor Organization's uh, policy brief mm. or manual, um, they do say, you know, sustainable development has three dimensions. Uh, yeah. They are economic, social, and environmental, mm-hmm. right? So it is like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just a, like it is supposed to actually transform, I, I mean, ideally, uh, economic structures. Mm-hmm. Like, but what do we mean by a green economy? Is that a capitalist economy? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Many uh, of the details, in especially in, uh, I, I think, uh, like part five or six mm. of the manual, they mention uh, key policy areas uh, and, you know, they go through various different sectors. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, there's a big, I, I feel like there, there uh, are things that will come into conflict that aren't really elaborated on like you know if you're trying to create these harmonious relationships and dialogue and between the idea of having decent work and like workers and local regions uh, of people and you know how are they going to be affected by enforcing uh, or implementing sustainable uh, production and consumption patterns like 
Mm. You know, if we're going to be creating more conservation of biodiversity, then that'll affect uh, whatever economy might be overfishing a certain area or deforesting a certain area. And then we have to think about who's working there. How are we going to offset the damages on maybe just like poor workers that are already being exploited in a particular mm. country? Yeah, of course, and that's precisely cetera, what's supposed right. to be uh, yeah. dealt with by you know, the just transition that uh, there's yeah. uh, mm-hmm. kind of all levels yeah, of justice. Exactly. But indeed, so I think yeah. I think what's important here is to distinguish between, if you like, the idea uh, of the Green New Deal, which is, mm-hmm. uh, if you like, shamelessly utopian. Um, you know, the concrete documents that we have, which are open to a lot of criticism um, and yeah. Impro- yeah. an improvement through that criticism. Nice segue into our yeah. Next. So I think <laughs> <laughs> next I think, discussion topic. You know, our our third exhibit here, um, as you've been pointing out, I think, uh, and as do many, that it's what's been proposed is insufficient for numerous reasons, which you've just which you've just outlined. On the other hand, it is a kind of focal point for the debate right now because we no longer have to kind of speak in the abstract about some kind of, you know, theoretical revolution that someone maybe should write a manifesto for, and then, you know, that will happen sometime in the kind of indeterminate future. I mean, what's nice about the Green New Deal is that it's something you can sink your teeth into, so to speak. It's something you can discuss, mm. something you can debate, something you can criticize, something you can improve. So this is one of the the reasons why 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 the idea of the Green New Deal is so important. Uh, if e- even if uh, what's been proposed in these documents um, is is lacking, and in that sense, I think we can say it is a n- necessary, even absolutely necessary step, although it remains insufficient. Um, And I think, you know, I mean, on on the left, that's something we really need to emphasize. I mean, both of those things, that it's necessary, that it is the way forward, although it needs work. (laughs) And it is not a, you know, finished document, uh, so to speak. You know, with that in mind, the last false dichotomy I want to bring up is between what you could call the the ideal solution to the climate crisis and practical solutions, right? As if there's kind of this this utopian ideal, which sounds nice, but it's kind of impractical or it's impracticable. And therefore, we need to make these compromises um, in the way of, you know, I think Joe Biden has just said that he wants a middle of the road climate policy, you know, as if there were such a thing, (laughs) right? And this is where I want to problematize this distinction between an ideal solution and then practical solutions, right? I would say we've reached a, a point in human history where the ideal solution has become the only practical solution, <laughs> right? I mean, we we do need to make some kind of radical moves here. And, you know, in that sense, we need to propose 
an ideal kind of utopian vision in that regard that we need to work towards. And that's what I, why I think that the Green New Deal is really helpful, although it's, you know, lacking, problematic. Again, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, necessarily distinguish between the ideal solution to the climate crisis and then practical solutions. Um, I think, you know, the Green New Deal mm-hmm. is the way forward, although it's insufficient. Um, we have to be able to make moves. Yeah. And I think uh, the uh, Green New Deal as an idea, as an ideal, <laughs> provides a focus and a, a fulcrum for debate. Um, we no longer have to operate in the abstract. We can talk about something concrete. You want to see something like uh, a Green New Deal implemented in order to be able to seriously criticize or to push far beyond what exactly. it is, right? Like, unless, like, if we're still only at the level of like lip service to climate catastrophe and there is no policy that's being enacted, then obviously that's worse than there being policy that is insufficient mm-hmm. being enacted, right? And again, like, to kind of use the Canadian example, this is something we saw with this latest federal liberal government where there's an awful lot of lip service towards um, climate change, uh, climate catastrophe, and very, very little actual And an awful lot of pipelines. Yeah, an awful lot of pipelines, you know? So there's not much that you can even criticize in terms of policy because there hasn't been anything done in a meaningful sense. So obviously, it's better to do something than nothing with respect to uh, climate policy, you know. But again, yeah, those policies, as we've kind of been discussing, are themselves insufficient um, and fall short of what is necessary if we want to live in these ecosystems in a way that we could continue to sustain the existence of our lives, which, you know, seems like a good goal. I think probably most people would feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, and in that regard, the situation is kind of analogous to uh, the problem with the Paris uh, Climate Accord, right? It's an incredibly important document in terms of actually coming together and reaching some kind of internet nominal international agreement that we're going to do something about, you know, recognizing it as a problem at the very least. Although, you know, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Is, <laughs> has uh, has left the accord. But, out. Has Canada? Are we still in it? Didn't Harper leave it? Uh, anyway, I forget. Yeah, no, I believe it uh, occurred after Harper uh, left, but uh, okay. my dates aren't uh, perfect here. So, you know. Right. I mean, it's an incredibly important document, although it does not uh, meet the urgency of the crisis at hand. So mm-hmm. we have to be able to recognize these moves as necessary, but deficient. You know, it's it, it's not one or the other, you know, just because just because the Green New Deal is insufficient doesn't mean that we have to reject it, I would argue. It means that we have to improve it. And how that is done, you know, is perhaps the subject for another podcast. I think we have to we have to overcome this dichotomy of searching for a practical solution as against the ideal solution. You know, I, we've reached a point where the ideal solution is the only meaningful solution. You know, I mean, uh, insofar as the alternative is species extinction, 
and uh, you know, mm. not only of our species, but most of most of the other species of living beings on this planet. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'd like to add something to that. Um, I agree with this idea that the ideal solution is the most meaningful, mm. uh, but um, I think that you know, for trying to concretize or reify or implement uh, the ideal solution, uh, at least based on some of the stuff I've read uh, in regards to the International Labor Organization and uh, other case studies and frameworks for kind of trying to create uh, a more social and ecological mm. system, still try to appeal to the desires of multiple different social actors. And I just feel like, you know, if you're going to try and realize or create a sustainable world, you're not going to be able to satisfy every social actor. Like, you're not going to be able to keep the rich, yeah. like, incredibly mm-hmm. rich, right? You're not going to, like, you know, the corp. Like, there are going to be ways in which those things come to con- mm-hmm. come into conflict. And I think the, like, you quote-unquote mm-hmm. idealism or utopianism of... These proposals ah, is yeah, that there point. is still yeah. I, I mm-hmm. think there is still some this presumption of har- har- right. harmony yes. that's going to be able to like yeah oh like we're all going to be able to satisfy everyone's needs like, yeah no that's not really true like it's not earnest enough yeah there's going to have to be an attack on the kind of social harmony that we've been that we tell ourselves exists in like liberal yeah. democracies you know we're going to have yeah. to admit that there are these real conflicts and fight them for instance just yeah. between workers yeah. and capital right indeed I mean what we need yeah. to do is to prioritize the well-being of the working class um you know and mm-hmm. if monsanto if exxon if raytheon northrop grumman you know if uh, if it hurts their profit margins if they if they go bankrupt so be it you know yeah. um we're talking about <laughs> yeah we're talk- let them die yeah, well said. yeah die. indeed we're talking about the well-being of the majority of human beings on this planet and you know we're just not willing to sacrifice that right we can't be willing to sacrifice that for the sake of a social harmony that is you know pretty spurious to begin indeed. with and um, indeed so yeah. Yeah, it's like if we're going to pretend like those structures are going to remain the same and it's mm-hmm. like oh well we're going to just yeah. try and like mold this uh, yeah. ideal to like the structures yeah. that already exist. Yeah. Like, that's part really of the central like, I would say like, central critique yeah. of the green new deal as it stands. I mean it's I mean it is still trying to make compromises between capital and labor uh, in a way that is mm-hmm arguably completely counterproductive. Yeah. Yes, uh, indeed. And insofar as it's self-defeating, it's hypocritical. And so that's what they need to be uh, pushed on. But on the other hand, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a necessary step. So I think, you know, that's our, that's our, yeah. um, I agree with that. mandate, if you will, on the left is to emphasize both these things, you know, this is not going to do it, but this is yeah. the direction we have to move. And also, like, let's say mm-hmm. something like a Green New Deal is implemented, whether here in the UK, United yeah. States, whatever, it's really pushing on the contradictions, yeah. right? And really, like, leading into those contradictions between capital and labor that will be exacerbated by the kinds of changes that will uh, have to be implemented in order to fulfill those policy expectations, yeah. right? And uh, be- it's like, about leading into those contradictions and trying to 
blow yeah. them up, basically, uh, rather than trying to smooth mm-hmm. them over and wallpaper over the fact that those contradictions will inevitably arise. Yeah, it's so one exactly. of those contradictions. Yeah, no. I mean, because if you look at the critiques of the Green New Deal, they're about those yeah. contradictions, right? Like it's a contradiction yeah. that we say we want to save the planet and that we're about to go mine all this <laughs> cobalt in Latin America right. or yes. whatever, right? Like those are in flagrant contradiction yes. to one another, and it's about yeah. pointing that out, calling that yeah. out, yeah. and um, <clears throat> like calling on people to live up to their own values. Even at the cost of sacrificing um, enormous quantities of wealth, which, you know, frankly, is what will need to happen. No doubt. Okay. Well, with that, um, maybe let's leave it there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Good chat, boys. Uh, Absolutely. Take care. We'll talk soon. So if you're listening to this, you like what you hear. Uh, you think that we had some interesting stuff to say? Maybe consider following us on Twitter or messaging us and letting us know. What Poplar you tapes. Yeah, at the Poplar tapes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and let us know what kind of uh, content you like to hear from us. Whether this discussion was interesting. To That's you right. Or... Reach out, and uh, if you have uh, suggestions for topics you you'd like us to cover, that sort of thing, uh, just let us know. And uh, we'll have we'll have fun. Or if with there's uh, important articles that we missed on this topic, you know, share those with us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Thanks, okay. boys. Cheers. Right. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Peace.